0: I wonder uh, what you think of when, is this even going to work today? Uh, no, not at all. Uh, There we go. (laughs) I wonder what you think of when you hear that word sacrifice. What comes to your mind uh, when that word pops on the screen or or, or somebody mentions it? Often today in our culture and our context, sacrifice means going without something. You know, We'll sacrifice food if we want to lose uh, weight. We might sacrifice um, money if we want to save. We'll sacrifice our time if we want to give our time or we want to volunteer somewhere. So sacrifice today means something very different to what sacrifice meant if we went, Back a couple of thousand years, and I asked a gathered crowd of people, What does sacrifice mean to you? Because in the ancient world, sacrifice was synonymous with worship, it was a part of a thing that, that, that people did. Uh, and in a pagan culture, a culture that, that worshipped and celebrated a plethora of gods, gods for everything, sacrifice was a big part of, of their worship. And the purpose of sacrifice in that culture, in that context, was to try and appease the gods, it was to try and convince the gods to do your bidding. So you you would worship gods uh, and you would sacrifice those gods in order to try and get those gods to do what it is that you would want them to do and there was gods for absolutely every aspect of life in different sacrificial systems and cultures depending on who the god was and what you wanted so if you wanted it to rain and your crops to grow you would sacrifice and you would worship um, to the gods in that pagan culture Um, if you wanted to be victorious in battle that was a big thing because you know, if one army defeated another army, it's basically saying, My God, our God, or our gods are stronger than your gods. And the army that would defeat the other army would sort of defeat their gods. It was this sort of divine battle, I suppose, as people saw that. So they would worship and sacrifice to the gods before battle so that they would be victorious in battle. If you wanted your women to become fertile and pregnant and give birth to sons, not daughters, to sons, because that was the way it was in the ancient worlds, you You would worship these gods and you would sacrifice those gods to try and convince them or appease them or or manipulate them to do your bidding. If you wanted your team to win at the weekly weekend chariot races, you would worship and sacrifice. Maybe not, I might have added that one in. The point is that whatever you wanted, if you wanted it to go well with you, you would go to the relevant god and you would worship that god and you would sacrifice to that god so that it would go well with you, so that the gods would do what you wanted to. Take but right in the mix of this pagan culture we see a a different culture the Jewish culture the the forerunner to the Christian faith the people of God the nation of Israel Um, Judaism and and Jewish worship was very different from this pagan world worship that was happening around at the time and Jewish worship wasn't synonymous with the word sacrifice Jewish worship was all about obedience see God was more important the the God that the Jews worshipped the one God not a plethora of gods. see Judaism talks about there isn't all these multiple gods gods for everything. And there's one God, one true God. Yahweh is his name. And God, Yahweh, isn't interested in sacrifice. He's interested in obedience. He's not interested in us manipulating him to do what we want him to do. He's interested in his followers, worshipping him and being obedient to him so that they will do the things that he um, uh, created them to do. And sacrifice still was a part of Jewish worship and, and they had a whole sacrificial system. And we're going to look at that um, in just... At a moment, but the point behind it wasn't about trying to convince or manipulate God to do something that you'd want Him to do. It's about this relationship and this obedience. And we're going to go on a journey right back um, to the sort of, I suppose, where this all begins, just, just to look at the importance of sacrifice and worship in that culture and the relevance that that has to us today. And it all begins at a time when the nation of Israel aren't even a nation at this point, they are captives, they are slaves in Egypt. And you might know of the story of Moses and if you've seen the film The Prince of Egypt, it's a great way just to get get an overview um, of that story that we can read about in Exodus, the second book we come to um, in the Old Testament in our Bibles. And Israel or they're not even Israel, this this nation of Jewish people, they're called the Hebrews are slaves, they're captives um, in Egypt and Pharaoh is the king, he's in charge and he's using the the Hebrew slaves as slave labour to build his new economy, to build his um, his new nation, to to work behind the scenes and the infrastructure of making Egypt this great and feared uh, place. And you might know the story, Moses, remember Moses, big guy, stick, beard, talks to God and God says to him, I want you to go to Pharaoh and tell him to let my people go. And Moses isn't too keen on this, but God convinces him. So Moses marches up to Pharaoh and there's, you know, I'm skipping over loads of stuff. And he says, let God's people go. And Pharaoh says, no, I'm not letting them go. I need them, you know, they're my slaves and I need them to be able to do the things that I want to do. I want, they need to be there working uh, for me. So God releases a series of plagues upon Egypt. Uh, in a way to, to convince Pharaoh to let his people go, to, to release the Hebrew slaves. And each plague gets more and more severe. And it comes to the final plague, and it is severe. It's a horrific thing uh, that um, happens into this nation of, of Egypt. And God says, I am going to kill the firstborn son of every, in every household and every animal um, throughout the nation of Egypt. And this is the plague that God um, sets upon Pharaoh. Um, Egypt, And he says to Moses and he says to the people of Israel, but there's a way out. Um, There's a way that you can escape this. Because what I want you to do is to go into the fields and find a goat or a lamb or or another animal. And I want you to sacrifice that goat. And then I want you to gather tonight at home around your table. And I want you to eat uh, from this animal that you've sacrificed. And uh, if there's only a few of you, grab your neighbours and close friends and relatives. And go out, grab a goat, sacrifice it, come home and eat eat that meal together this evening. But what I want you to do something else is, well, I want you to take the blood from that goat, the blood from that lamb, that blood from that animal, and I want you to paint it on the doorposts of your house, because the angel of death is going to pass through Egypt tonight. That sounds a bit scary, doesn't it? Uh, the angel of death. And when the angel of death comes across your household, and he sees the blood of the lamb painted on your doorpost, he will pass over that house, and no harm will come to the people uh, in there. And that's what happened. So the people went out and you know dads maybe were taking their sons and they went into the field and they found a lamb or a goat or, or an animal and they sacrificed it and they brought it home and that evening they gathered around a table and they ate together and they painted the blood on the doorsteps on the doorposts and the angel of the lord uh, the angel of death came in throughout Egypt and passed over every house that was painted by the blood of the lamb but didn't pass over the houses that didn't have the blood of the lamb painted on their doorposts and took the firstborn son of every household and every animal as well. And morning breaks and there is weeping and wailing in Egypt like it's never been seen before. And Pharaoh relents and he lets um, the Hebrews go and they go off into the wilderness and a bit later he changes his mind and he pursues them and you might know the story of the parting of the Red Sea and God miraculously rescues um, Israel again and they part through the Red Sea um, into the Promised Land and go on this journey where they become um, a nation again and and God um, establishes them and blesses them. And God says to them, this thing that I've done for you, this thing Passover that's happened, I want you to remember that. Every year, I want you to gather around a table with your family and your friends, and I want you to eat this meal in remembrance of what has happened. I want you to eat this meal to remember how the blood of the Lamb has set you free. Free, how God, how I came in and brought you out of captivity. And this was a tradition that carried on throughout um, Jewish culture and Jewish tradition. It's a tradition that still happens today um, in, in Jewish cultures, in Jewish homes, that once a year on, at the festival of Passover, they gather around tables to remember and to celebrate what God has done in their history and in their heritage. You know, so much about Jewish culture and Jewish worship um, is full of, you know, gathering together on Mass and you've got a priest and the priest dresses up in all the right clothes and there's lots of ceremony and lots of ritual and all that sort of stuff. Passover is not like that at all. Passover isn't a thing where the whole nation comes um, together and the priest uh, does that for them. Passover is a thing that happens intimately in small environments around a table where people gather with family, where people gather with close friends still today and remember and celebrate what God has done. And as we fast forward through the history um, of Israel, we see that they get established as a nation uh, and you know God is with them and God gives them a whole bunch of rules and regulations to live by. If, God, if this pure, awesome, holy God is going to be in the presence of these impure, imperfect people, then there's some things that they're going to have to do. And then there's a, this whole sacrificial system that comes to play that actually is designed to make amends for wrongdoing. And sacrifice is part of the Jewish um, system, again, isn't, isn't like in the pagan cultures where you're trying to convince God to do something you want him to do It's not about manipulating God Sacrificing the Jewish system is all about this word, atonement And sometimes we get scared of that word, we might not understand fully what it means Actually, it's quite easy to understand what atonement means Because it's, it's three words uh, in one, it's at-one-ment And the whole sacrificial system and the whole atonement process is all about making it possible for people to be at one with God. See what we see throughout the history of Israel, through the laws and the stuff that given to Moses and given to the people of Israel, is that there's a consequence uh, for doing the things that we know we shouldn't do. You know, God gave them a standard to live by, and when we don't live to that standard, or when they didn't live to that standard, there was separation. You know, if God is perfect and pure, and we are not, that impurity, that imperfection, that sin, which is the word we use, separates us um, from God. And the Jewish sacrificial system was all about making a home and making it possible for the people of Israel to be made at one again uh, with God and they had this whole range of things that they, that they did so if you committed this sort of sin then you would have to go and get this sort of animal or these grains or whatever and offer that or sacrifice it to God um, and there, there was basically like a menu that's the way I picture it it's like a pay-as-you-go scheme isn't it so if you're rude to your neighbor maybe you get a pigeon and you sacrifice a pigeon and there you go if you commit the biggest crime of all and you support Man United well that's your whole livestock and everything has to be sacrificed uh, on that. It's not quite like that, but there was this system of of things that you would offer these animals and the blood of that animal, just like the blood of that lamb or that goat that was painted on the doorpost um, at Passover, made it possible for you to be forgiven of your sin, made it possible for that barrier which separates us from God to be taken away and we can be at one with God. But on top of all of that, on top of all this sort of ritual sacrifice that took place throughout um, the Jewish tradition and Jewish culture, there was this thing. um, Oh, sorry, we'll go on. And the whole point about atonement, sorry, um, it literally means this word to cover. So that's what the, the literal meaning of the word to cover. And what they're trying to do is they're trying to cover something bad with something good in order to restore a relationship. They're trying to cover up the sin and the wrongdoing and the rebellion and the selfishness and the self-centeredness of them as a nation and as as individuals. They're covering that up with something good, the blood of a pure animal. You know, God talks about the the blood is sacred, the life force um, of the animal is within the blood. And somehow through that, something amazing happens and and it, it makes amends. I'm not totally sure how that happens, but that's what God has said to them and to restore this relationship. So they did all this stuff, and they, um, you know, it's quite a bloody scene, isn't it? But then once a year, we talked about this last week. Quickly, there was this thing called the Day of Atonement, and that was a time when the nation gathered, and the and the high priest would come out, and it was full of ceremony, and it was full of ritual. And the high priest on the Day of Atonement would take two pure, spotless goats, and you know, we talked about one of the goats last week that they would sacrifice uh, that goat and sprinkle its blood on the Ark of the Covenant, uh, and that would be part of a thing that's trying. To make amends, he's trying to atone for the wrongdoing of the nation of Israel. But then the, the high priest would also take this other pure spotless goat and place his hands on the head of that goat. And ceremoniously and symbolically he would transfer the sin of the nation of Israel onto that goat. So all the wrongdoing, all the sin, all the rebellion, all the selfishness of that nation was transferred from the individuals onto the head of this pure, spotless goat. And then they would lead that goat away into the desert, into the wilderness. And the people who are gathered around see this. They see the priest place his hands on the head of the goat. They see this sort of ceremony and the symbolism of, of my sin is taken off me and it's been placed onto that goat. And then what does the goat do? Well, the goat wanders off, it carrying my sin it's removing my sin from me and the goat would go into the wilderness and eventually you know it would die um, as it would and this would be an act that would symbolise that God is through the the goat he's allowing the sin of the nation of Israel to be placed on that goat and to be carried away that atonement has happened that the people of Israel are at one with God again the problem is this had to happen every single day Yeah, an ongoing process. And the next year come around, two pure goats, sacrifice one, sprinkle its blood, place the sins of the nation of Israel onto the head of the other one and lead it off into the the wilderness as a scapegoat. That's where we literally get that, that phrase from. And that would work for a year and then you'd have to do it again and again and again and again. And what we see through this whole system is that this is a temporary fix for a problem that required an ultimate solution. You know, there was separation from God because of their wrongdoing, and this was a temporary fix, it was a sticky plaster for something that actually needed an ultimate solution and as we fast forward to you know AD 30 um, this guy called John the Baptist comes onto the scene and John the Baptist is a, is a strange character I don't know how you picture him if you've thought of him at all I picture him as a little bit you know hair is a bit wild and his clothes are a bit strange and a little bit angry I picture him as and he's there and he's saying to the people of Israel that, um, the people of Judea who are surrounding him, he says you know God is about to do something amazing in your midst God's about to do something new you've got to get ready you've got to get ready you you got to get ready. You do not want to miss out on this new thing that God is doing. And he went around baptizing people, which again was another symbolic ceremonial act. Um, that just like the, the 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 goat and the sin carried away on, onto that goat, baptism was this symbol that you know I've done wrong thing, wrong. I've done things wrong, and I've disobeyed God, and I've rebelled against Him, and I'm selfish, and and I think about myself. But I'm willing to actually to make amends. I'm willing to to start something new and and the waters of the River Jordan which actually in places don't seem that clean at all um, symbolises that cleansing of our soul that as we go down into the water and come out of the water that we've made a new start and our soul has been deep cleaned and this is what John was doing and the crowds flocked to him people loved him John was the man he was the most famous he was the most popular person in Israel or Judea at the time he had more followers on Facebook than anybody else at that time it says the whole of Judea came out to meet him now probably the whole of Judea didn't come out because that's quite a lot but the point is clear thousands and thousands and thousands of people flocked to hear what John was talking about because something new was about to happen something amazing was about to happen and they wanted to be part of it and then one day John is standing there and the crowds are all gathered around hanging off his every word listening uh, to what he has to say and he looks up and he says to the people look and he points perhaps, look, and the whole of the nation of Israel or the whole of Judea or the thousands of people that are there are looking at John and John says, look. And before this, he's talked about, you know, you think I'm special, I'm not special. After me comes somebody who is so great, who is so amazing. I am not even worthy to bend down and tie up his shoelaces. And with all that stuff ringing in people's ears, John goes, look. And the, the people turn and they face this character that John is pointing to. And he says, "'The Lamb of God.'" And that wouldn't have escaped people. They would have known exactly what he's talking about. They know what the Lamb of God is. They know about the Day of Atonement. They know about Passover. They know about that sacrificial system. And as as John says, the Lamb of God, those sort of things would have conjured in their mind. And he continues, who takes away, just like that goat, just like that scapegoat takes away the sin of the nation of Israel for one year. Look, there's the Lamb of God who's going to take away the sin of. Of the world, not just the sin of this nation, but look, there is the Lamb of God standing right there, and He has come to take away the sin of the entire world, not just for a year, but forever and ever and ever and ever. And the attention shifts. All this attention and all this focus has been on John, and now it shifts. To Jesus, who's standing there, and I, I wonder what that was like for Jesus. You know, maybe he's just walking through with his friends and, and his disciples, and, and John points and says, "Look!" And imagine if that was you—the whole, the, like thousands and thousands of people turn and face you. What does Jesus do? I like to think he just gave a little wave and carried on walking. I have no idea what happened. But I do know what happens next because the focus shifts from John and shifts onto Jesus. And people stop following John and they start following Jesus. And he does some amazing stuff. He, he travels around the, the region of Judea and he, he teaches people around Galilee, sorry, and he teaches them about who God is. And he performs some amazing miracles and he challenges people on their religious positions and, and all that sort of stuff. He challenged people on being hip, hypocrites and he challenges people on just thinking about following the rules without realizing what the rules are there for in the first place. And then ultimately, we get towards, you know, three years later, this amazing stuff has happened, and the, the festival of Passover comes around again. And Jesus has got tons of followers, you know, at this point. And, and he gathers around a table with a few of his closest followers, the 12 disciples, the 12 apostles, as we refer to them. Not everybody's there. You know, it's an intimate gathering, as is customary for the, that celebration of, of, um, of Passover. And they're celebrating Passover together, this thing that the nation of Israel have done for so many years. But then Jesus does something unthinkable. He messes with tradition. He messes with culture. He starts to take this whole Passover thing and give a new, deeper meaning to it. And they're eating and they're celebrating it and whilst they're eating, Jesus uh, is there and he took bread and when he'd given thanks, he broke it and he says to disciples saying, take and eat this bread is my body and the disciples I wonder were thinking what's he doing now this is Passover you can't mess with Passover now this is something that's been part of our tradition and part of our culture for, for years for generations you're messing with it he continues then he took a cup and when he'd given thanks he gave it to them saying drink from it all of you this is my blood for the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins just imagine being there you know the tension around this table jesus is doing something new and th- that symbolism you know this this bread this bread is my body which has been broken for you this cup this cup is my blood which has been poured out for you for the forgiveness of your sins this amazing thing happens uh, in the midst. And, and they're probably still trying to make sense of it and don't have quite the time to make sense of it because then Jesus um, wanders out into the garden of Gethsemane because he knows what's about to happen. You know, within hours of him saying that, he's in this garden and he, and he comes before God and he says, you know, Father, is there another way? He knows he's about to be arrested. He knows he's about to be tortured. He knows he's about to be crucified. And he pleads with his father, is there another way? Take this cup from me. But not my will be done, your will be done. If it has to be like this, let it be so. Because my worship, my devotion is not about trying to get you to do what I want you to do. It's about me being obedient to your will and me doing what you want me to do. And we know the story uh, that that happens that, you know, hours later after this meal, after he celebrated Passover um, with his friends, uh, he's arrested. um, And uh, he's sentenced. uh, And by next morning, by, uh, um, by the next day, things happen really quickly. He's nailed to a cross. Within hours you know, of him saying this stuff, within hours of saying this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins, Jesus is nailed to a cross and his body is broken and his blood is pouring out. Those prophetic words that he said hours before are finding fulfillment as Jesus hangs to the cross and a few hours later he's dead. And the disciples think, What's happened? You know, we thought this was all coming to head. We thought this was all climaxing. We thought everything was going to happen, and it's all over. Everything has fallen apart. But we know that's not the end of the story because death could not hold him as we've sung about already the grave could not contain him that jesus burst forth uh, from death into glorious resurrected life that jesus conquered the power of death that jesus conquered the power of darkness that jesus conquered the power and paid the price the consequence for sin so that we can be forgiven so that that atonement that we need to make us at one with god can finally and fully be paid so that death does not have to be an end for us, that we can experience this new life, this fullness of life. And this new movement bursts onto the pages of history. The the Christian church explodes um, across history and worship takes a change um, again. And and this focuses attention on who Jesus is, the the divine nature of God, the sacrificial nature um, of Jesus. And the church grows and spreads throughout the world. And uh, there's a guy called Paul who becomes one of the leaders of the early church. He writes a letter to Christians in a place called Rome, which is a very dangerous place to be a Christian at this point of history and he says this um, about worship therefore because of you know therefore because of all the stuff and he's talked about this in the first few chapters of, of Romans because of who Jesus is and because of what Jesus has done I urge you brothers and sisters in view of God's mercy you know look what Jesus has done that he was willing to do that for you and me because of that, I urge you to offer your bodies as sacrifices, but not as dead sacrifice, as living sacrifice, as a continual, ongoing sacrifice, something that's holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship and as a result from this point on Christian worship transforms the worship of the ancient world that that it's not about sacrifice it's not about appeasing the gods it's not about manipulating uh, the gods it's not even about making amends for your wrongdoing that Christian worship is categorised by these three things remember that they gather and they remember and we gather and we remember you know when we worship together when we gather together we don't gather to call God down we gather to remember that God came down and did all these amazing things when we gather to worship we celebrate that's why we sing songs it's a great way to celebrate the goodness of God the amazing thing that Jesus has done uh, for us that's why some people lift their hands in worship in devotion because they are so enamored and so grateful for what God has done for what Jesus has done for them that we celebrate that sometimes we need to remind ourselves about that don't we because often you know I know when we come on a Sunday or wherever it is and we worship, celebrate is quite a long way away from us because whatever reason, all the distractions around us and, and life and stuff, we forget that you know we, we, we have good news with things to be thankful for and worship is an opportunity for us to come together and do that. But worship is also about submission, the opportunity for us to come before God and in worship, we're not trying to get God to do what we want him to do. We're trying to get ourselves to a place where we're able to submit to him and say, not my will be done. Just as Jesus has said, your will be done. And this is what happened uh, in the early church and this is what has happened throughout the history um, of of the church, that we gather and we remember and we celebrate and we submit. And in a moment, we're going to do that. We're going to take part in a key part of of this worship. We're going to gather around the table. And this is an act that has its heritage right back on that first Passover. You know, a tradition that the Jewish people continued where they would gather around a table to remember that the blood of the Lamb has set them free. And then as we go throughout history, you know, we, we see with the whole thing of the scapegoat, that not only does the blood of the lamb set us free, but the blood of the lamb forgives us for our sin. And it carries all the way throughout that history, that the Jewish, Jewish tradition and culture, right up to Jesus, who is that ultimate Passover lamb that because of the blood of the Passover lamb, Jesus, we can be free as we celebrate in Passover, but we can be forgiven um, as we see through that day of atonement. And that's what happened. The early church did that and, and they were celebrating. They would meet on mass, but they would gather in homes and they would gather around a table. And Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. And there's a huge debate about what did Jesus mean when he says, do this in remembrance of me. But what they did do is they gathered together and they worshipped and they celebrated and they remembered and they submitted to God. That they did that around a table and they met in those homes to remember what God has done. And that's why we continue that practice on today. And that's why we are so keen that this happens, that we gather around tables in small groups. That our groups throughout the weeks and, and throughout the months meet and they do lots of things but they gather around a table to remember, to celebrate and to submit. And we're going to have the opportunity to do that in just a moment. Perhaps you're not in a small group and you miss out on this regular activity. I so encourage you. We talked about this last week. Get in a small group. Find that opportunity uh, to do that. Come and chat with us in the Next Steps area afterwards or or go to fbcnext.com. But we're going to celebrate together in a moment. We're going to sing. We're going to have space to reflect. We're going to have space to take bread and to drink wine or or grape juice. Remembering this amazing thing that Jesus has done this is a thing for, for those of us who believe in Jesus, who've said, yeah, you are my saviour, you are my Lord, and I want to worship you. And if that's you, when we do that, Matt's going to come and lead us. We invite you uh, to take part uh, in that. But maybe this is a, a turning point for you in your journey. Maybe you're not sure what you believe or what you think. And this morning, you can come to a point where you think, yes, I do believe. Yes, Jesus is my Lord. Yes, Jesus is my saviour you can come and you can take bread and you can drink the grape juice Remember that symbolism of what Jesus has done that you can be forgiven that you can be set free let's worship together why don't we stand to our feet